The rest of you go ahead and take your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, page 1028. Again, if you're following along in a chair Bible. Our series is What is the Church? And we are going to take uh, a while to go through the churches in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. But let's pray and ask God to bless His Word and work in our lives. Father, You are a good God, and we praise You that there is none above You, none before You. All of time is in Your hand. And I ask that today You'd get glory from this message and that You'd get glory in our lives that we would go from here with a head lifted up to you, trusting you for the strength that we need. I pray you'd minister to each person here, help them in their different struggles, their joys, their sorrows, their, their highs and lows, the fears they have for this week, that they'd cast those on you, um, that you'd strengthen our family, strengthen our witness, and strengthen our love, most importantly, for Jesus Christ. Tim, be the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Just the other day, I was reading a book called Be the Leader You Were Meant to Be, and it was a guy who is with the Navigators, and he read 40 different leadership books, and he said, you know what? All leadership books, the best leadership principles actually are biblical. And so he narrowed it down to the biblical truths of leadership, but one of the things that is true of all leaders is you have to be ready for difficulties. And there are different threats to leadership, whether you're leading a business, whether you're leading a church, or you're leading a family. There are threats. So I got to the chapter about the dangers that a leader faces. And uh, do you ever try to guess, like my outlines, do you ever try to guess ahead what someone's going to say? That's what I did with this book. I'm like, oh, I know what he's going to say. He's going to say, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's going to be the dangers. I was wrong. Open the book, and the three dangers that he said for any leader are covetousness, self-glory, and get this, discouragement. And it just struck me, I would have never guessed that. And as I began studying this text in Revelation, it made me ask the question, what if there are things that Jesus sees about our church that he's praising that we're missing? And things that he sees that need changed that we're also missing. You know, picking a church is hard, and how do you know if you're going to a good church? Last week, Isaiah showed us pictures of beautiful cathedrals that he thought, but he said the churches seem dead. I've watched doctrinal watchdogs on YouTube, and uh, they say, this guy's a false preacher, and then they scan to this church, and you know what his church is? It's massive. <laughs> I mean, it's huge, and there's tens of thousands of people just filling the auditorium, so it can't be the amount of people in a church. And it's not just simply the beauty of the church. How do you know if you're going to a good church? You know, something that most people don't maybe know is when you're a pastor's kid, you don't have much say in what church you go to. <laughs> yeah. Because if you go to a different church, then the church people start wondering what's going on. And so I never really got to pick a church until I went to college. And I remember it being one of the weirdest experiences ever. How do you pick a church? You know, we call it, we could call it church shopping. How do you know if you're getting a good product? That was an interesting question to wrestle through. How do we know if our church is good? Well, the answer really is the only person, only a person with perfect knowledge can explain if a church is look good. Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus describes himself. Remember, Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This book has got a lot of things in it 
that can be confusing. But the main point of the book is to reveal Jesus Christ as the conquering, coming king. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, describes Jesus as the hairs of his head were white. They were pure like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. At the end of the day, the only person that can truly judge a church is Jesus Christ. And so we have to look to him. And over the next several weeks, we're going to examine these churches that thought they were alive but were dead, and some that thought they were dead but actually were doing great. Our definition of the church we've been using is the church is God's people called out of death and coming together to accomplish God's plan on earth. God's people called out of death, spiritual death, and coming together. We have to do that, right? We found that out with COVID. Church online is not church. <laughs> it simply isn't. And we welcome those who are watching, but it's different when you're just watching it online versus being here, singing together, strengthening each other, talking to each other. Church is coming together to accomplish God's plan on earth. And he, Ephesus is the first church we're going to look at. We read that in verses 1 through 6 or 1 through 7 about their love for God that had grown cold. And if you want to know the background of Ephesus, they were, that was the town where they had the great goddess Artemis. And from day one of the church being planted, there was a battle between false gods and the one true God. And out of a love for the one true God, do you remember what the people in Ephesus did? They were big into idol worship. And then they got saved, and they're like, this idol is not real. But we've got all these books about magic incantations and all these special things they were supposed to do to get Artemis' attention. What did they do with them? Do you remember? They said, let's have a bonfire. <laughs> Someone bring marshmallows. We're going to burn all of our books. And so they took and they destroyed this huge worth value in books because they loved the Lord more than getting a few bucks back for their books. This caused a huge ruckus. And if you go back to Acts, Demetrius is a silversmith, and he would work with, uh, with oh, what are they called? craftsmen there we go he would work with craftsmen the craftsmen would form an idol and demetrius would cover it with silver and then he'd sell it and demetrius goes hey guys i'm not getting as much business <laughs> all these christians have stopped buying these idols so what on earth are we supposed to do we've got to stop this and so they were opposed from day one so we got to do something about it we're going to go broke so apparently boycotts are not anything new the Christians of Ephesus boycotted the purchase of all these items. And Demetrius was not happy. The church, though, was founded and strengthened by Paul, was later pastored by Timothy and the apostle John himself. Paul wrote a letter the book of Ephesus. It's a great read. Sometimes sit down, read through the whole book of Ephesus at one, or Ephesians at one time. And he commended them for their love. But this is 35 to 40 years later. And look at what Jesus says about them 35 to 40 years later verse 4 says i have this against you you have abandoned the love you had at first here was a thriving church they were doctrinally sound they were suffering church it tells us they were enduring well under suffering but they had lost their love for god the word left there implies deliberate action the Ephesian church had powerhouse preachers who stood up and preached against heresy and could argue against the issues of the day. And I'll tell you, sometimes I'm a little bit intimidated by preachers like that who can do that. If you've ever heard an apologist, it's just like they are so confident. And they go to talk about issues, and I've seen this guy, um, Durbin, I think is his last name. 
And he'll go to like these protests and there will be people debating him and he was debating with atheists and he debates with all these people and he's got all the answers, just boom, 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 and all these Bible references. Just a great debater. And if you've ever been to an apologist sermon, sometimes it's just like, yeah, let's go. You know, you just get really excited and sometimes they intimidate me. But that's probably about what the pastors at Ephesus were. They were standing up against false doctrine, against bad teaching, against the issues of their day. The church was a working church. Did you notice that? It says, I know your works, your toil. It literally means to, to labor to the point of exhaustion. I remember when I came here and someone said, Pastor, you should know 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And that's actually pretty common. And the 20% of the people know exactly what this idea is. Where you're laboring to the point of exhaustion in the church. You're teaching Sunday school, you're on the deacon board, or you're, you're on a committee, and then you help work on every project. You're there every time the doors are open, and sometimes we're in church so much, and, and we're laboring to the point of exhaustion. And so they're a working church. They devoted their time, their energy, and resources to the point of exhaustion, which makes me think that VBS must be an original thing way back when the church was started. They must have VBS because they're toiling to the point of exhaustion. And then it says that they were also a disciplining church. It says, you have, not, you have not endured those who are evil. You have tested them who call themselves apostles and are not. You remember in 1 John when he says, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see which one is true. And then he says, they went out from us because they were not of us. And so this, doc, this church literally is testing and examining the members to make sure they're doing what is right says they hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which is good. And he even says that you have labored, but you have not grown weary. And interestingly, what that means to grow weary actually means to grow weary morally. And as a pastor, you get to have deeper conversations with a lot of people. But even in our small groups, you'll get to know that sometimes when a Christian is exhausted, moral sin is one of the quickest things that they'll run to. They'll run to moral impurity as just an escape. And Jesus says, look it, you're enduring and you're not running to moral and sexual sin. But, you don't love me. This was a second generation of Ephesians. These kids had grown up in the church and in all the busyness, Jesus had become a master to work for and not a friend to be desired. And I had to stop and wonder, is that where Jesus is at in your life right now? A master to work for, but not a friend to be desired. Sometimes when you're raised in the church, you're used to the busyness. You're used to doing the things. You're used to going through all the work, but your relationship, your love for Jesus is not there. Just the other day, I was talking with a guy, um, and he was telling me about a, a friend that he works with who, interestingly enough, was struggling with sexual sin. And this guy has been laboring for God, having up to 15 discipleship meetings a week. Now, if you've done discipleship meetings, they're really fun. But that's like an hour. He's doing 15 of these a week. But he's struggling with sexual sin. And my friend said, you don't need to do more. You need to reestablish your love for Jesus. Because clearly you're just working for him and not loving him anymore. So I wonder, have you ever been there? Have you gotten so busy working for Jesus that you couldn't remember just enjoying time with him and his word? I know I have, and too, it's too often that it happens. Is there any hope for us to be restored to a joyful relationship? Absolutely there is. 
Otherwise, I wouldn't be preaching this sermon. <laughs> uh, no, there's no hope. And in fact, I want to share with you one of the most encouraging things for me from this text is that second generation and third generation Christians can love God just as much as new Christians. Sometimes when you're raised in the church, you meet someone and they've been saved and they're 40 years old and they've got this testimony that's just like black and white. I mean, they were wicked and ungodly and they were doing everything wrong and then Jesus saves them and it's like, woo, this is a different person. They're excited for God and sometimes when you're a Christian, you grew up in the church, you feel less than. Because you're like, well, I don't have that cool of a story. The church of F, the Ephesian church encourages us that no matter what generation Christian you are, if you were saved as a young kid, you can love Jesus just as passionately as an adult who came to know him as his savior in his older years. And that was an encouragement for me because, do you remember that verse? And I've had someone quote this verse against me. Do you remember that verse that says, uh, he who is forgiven much loves much? but he was forgiven little, loves little. I had someone quote that to me and say, you will never be able to love God as much as me. And I kind of believed him. How though do we reclaim love? Point number one, refocus. Jesus is what you need. Refocus. Jesus is what you need. Verse one, it says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven gold lampstands. Holds means that Jesus has the power over the pastors and the churches. Walks among means that Jesus is not absent, but he is present with his church. In each of these letters, Jesus reveals himself as just what the church needs to help them with where they're failing. And that was one of the cool things as I began to study, as I began to work through this. In each one of these, Jesus reveals himself as just what they need. Now, as a church, sometimes you think if we're doctrinally sound, if we're serving the Lord well, and if we've got people, we're going to last. And Jesus says, I hold the lampstand. I can close your doors, or I can keep them open. And so it humbles us to say, you know what? The reason we're here today, do you know the reason we're here today is because Jesus has not chosen to close this church yet. That's the reason we're still here today. Because Jesus is just what we need. So refocus. Jesus is what you need. And he reveals himself as just what we need. You know, just the other day, we were having breakfast. And Ezra is learning to communicate uh, in different ways. <laughs> but one of the ways, we, I, we taught him more as a little kid. And he's supposed to do more, please. He just got more. And it's like this. And uh, now we have bananas that are up on top of our fridge. And he goes, <laughs> and, and, he, and he reaches towards the banana. What he knew is that what he needed was not to crawl out of his high chair and figure out how to crawl up onto the counter, although he would have loved that. <laughs> he needed his dad to be tall and to reach the banana for him. And I did. And Jesus, sometimes we think, well, I just need to work harder. I just need to try harder. No, Jesus is what we need. When you feel far from God and want to reclaim your love for him, refocus. Jesus is what you need. Point number two, rejoice. Jesus knows the good that you're doing. Verses two through three says, I know your works. I know your toil. I know your patient endurance. You can't bear with those who are evil and have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and you have not grown weary. Sometimes when you come to a sermon and uh, you're asked a question like, do you still love Jesus like you used to? 
And at least for me, when the answer is no, it feels like all of what you've been doing is worthless. All the, the time you've been working, all the time you've been serving the Lord. And she says, oh, no, 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 no. It's not worthless what you're doing. I know the good that you're doing. No means I have a clear mental picture of what's going on in your life. Now, I would still say I'm young. I'm only 30. But I remember the days of square TVs. You know, not like these nice. I'm so glad we're to flat screens. I'm not, I do not miss those things. I had to clean out an apartment one time. And there's a 70-inch like plasma TV, and I kid you not, the thing was this big, and carrying that took four men. It was huge. But anyway, do you remember antennas, like the, the bunny ears? So you'd have it on top of your TV, and you'd turn on the channel, and it'd be like fuzzy, and, and your dad usually would get up there, and, and, and he'd have it just right, and sometimes you had to get a hanger and hook it from something else. I remember those days, and, and the picture was like decent, but there was always one channel that you never got a good picture, and if you finally got it, nobody could move on the couches. Am I the only one that did this? You know, it, it was like you'd sit there, and, and, and uh, the TV's on, and it's a good picture, and you're like, oh, I gotta go to the bathroom. You stand up like this, and it gets, it gets fuzzy again, and you have to sit back down. It's like, you can't go to the bathroom until the show's over. What it says here is that Jesus does not have, when he says he sees, he doesn't have a foggy picture. Jesus sees perfectly what's going on in this church. And he's the only one that does. I don't see perfectly what's going on in this church. And you don't even see perfectly what's going on in your own heart. Do you remember when Paul said, I don't even judge myself. Because I don't even know exactly what's going on. What does he know? He knows that they're enduring patiently. He knows um, that they haven't grown weary. They haven't committed sexual sin. They were enduring and being careful. And so this is for our encouragement. This is a comfort for all believers that Jesus knows. Even though he has his rebukes, he also has praise. I may have asked, have you ever gotten so busy working for Jesus that you don't remember enjoying him? And if your heart sinks, rejoice though that Jesus knows all your good works. Third way to reclaim love is to repent. To repent. We must refocus, we must rejoice, and we must repent. And a good thing for you to wrestle through is what does it look like for a Christian to live a life of repentance? Can anyone give me a definition of repentance? You know, remember what it means? Change your direction, right? To change your mind. To be going one way, to change your mind. An intentional turn. Verse 4 through 5, he says, Remember, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you have at first. Remember, repent, and repeat. That was Wearsby's outline. Remember, repent, and repeat the works that you did at first. In Acts chapter 20, verse 21, 50-ish years earlier, Paul had said that the church was founded on repentance. And he's, do we have the next slide? Acts 20. No? Okay. You'll have to take my word for it. <laughs> he said the church was founded on repentance. It was part of what they were preaching the gospel for. And the sense here is that they use, he, he says remember and repent, and the sense used here is actually pictures someone falling off a cliff. When he talks about repentance, it's a picture of someone who has fallen, and they look back like, what in the world's going on? I remember uh, at Dysert, right before we moved to Waterloo, I had one tree in our yard that I hadn't conquered yet. I hadn't climbed it. The reason for that is because the first branch was 10 feet up. And I was like, all right, 
I'm getting the ladder. I've got to climb all the trees before we move. So I got the ladder out. I climbed. And you know that step that says, don't step on this? You know, <laughs> Stepped on that. And I grabbed the first branch. And I could barely reach out. It's probably about Eli's size or a little bit bigger. And I grabbed that branch. And my brothers were there. I'm like, great job. Yeah, let's go. And, and uh, pulled it up. And I lifted my legs. And all I heard was, snap. And I fell 10 feet right on my back. So I don't know if I technically climbed it or didn't. But anyway, the word repent here literally means to look back and say, what happened? And that's what I did with that tree branch. I was like, what happened? And I want you to think even as you think back on your own life, have you loved God more? Than Was there ever a time in your life where you had an affection for God that's kind of dwindled? Mounts describes repentance. He says, it's bear in mind the loving relationship you once enjoyed and make a clean break with your present manner of life. Wolverton and Zuck say, in calling the Ephesian believers to repentance, Christ was asking them to change their attitudes as well as their affections. They were to continue in their service because he says, do the first work, still do your service, but not simply because it was right, but because they loved Jesus Christ. Love for God is not wrought by legalistically observing His commands, but by responding to one's knowledge and an appreciation and love. And you know that it's easier to work for someone that you love, isn't it? When you love your spouse and you work together in the home, it's easy. When you don't really love your spouse too well and you work together, you go, ah, I've done this way too many times. But love allows you to move and to work for God well. In the Ephesian church, they had loved the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse, 21, verse 11 through 22, it says that don't you remember that you were at one time aliens? You, you had the, the circumcision and the uncircumcision, but they both loved the gospel and they were united to Christ. And that's a love that we should have. Every single person that you meet can go to heaven if they receive Christ as their Savior. And we can love the gospel together. They also had a love for each other. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. So they had a love for God. They had a love for each other. They had a love for the gospel. And in Ephesians chapter 4, it says in verse 2, this is page 970, if you follow along in a chair Bible. It says, with all humility and with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. When you love someone, you can put up with a whole lot, can't you? And they bear with one another in love. Look down at verse 14 and 15, or 15 and 16. It says, rather speak the truth, how? In love. When you love someone, are you willing to say difficult things to them? You are. And so they, they were united in this way, in a special way. And so we should love Jesus because he took on the form of a servant, came in our likeness, and even though he was God, he lived here on the earth. He was hungry and thirsty, endured temptation and never sinned. And he offered us a way that we might have eternal life. But we should love him and allow that to motivate our love for each other. This might be a good thing to write down or at least remember. A good way to diagnose if you're struggling in your love for God is how you're doing with other Christians. Because remember the two great commandments? What are they? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. One of the characteristics of our dwindling love for God is when we begin to be more and more 
easily offended by other Christians. The reality is, you and I are all sinners. We're going to hurt each other. That's, that's a reality. I can guarantee you that. I can promise you that. If you never want to get hurt by the church, don't come to church. <laughs> but if you love each other, you'll bear with one another. Do you know that people communicate in different ways? Some people are very blunt. Some of you know who you are. <laughs> and as a pastor, you have to learn to communicate to them in a blunt way. But what's really fun is when you have a conversation with a blunt person who loves the exact words in email, and then you got someone else who, if you send them an email, they have no clue how to read it. <laughs> and you go from that, okay, there are going to be offenses that happen. So that was, that was honestly a question that really challenged me is, okay, do I love Jesus? How patient am I with the people? Finally, remain. Jesus guarantees a reward. Remain. Continue in that love. So he says in verses 6 through 7, that, that this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to you the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Paul had warned the Ephesian church that among them, in Acts 20, verse 28 through 30, among you would come wolves that would devour the flock. And I didn't know this. Do you know that the Nicolaitans were founded by Nicholas? And does anyone have any clue who Nicholas is? I didn't know this. Nicholas, you remember in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, after the apostles said, we will devote ourselves to the preaching and teaching of the word of God, they said, pick out from among you seven men who are of good report, full of the Holy Spirit. Remember that? They're picking out the deacons, and the church selects seven men. One of them is named Nicholas. Selected by the church. He was supported by the apostles, and he went on to found a false doctrine group. It's believed that he founded the group that believed in the distinction between laity and clergy, where the clergy had a special, uh, special knowledge. This is actually still practiced like in the Catholic Church, um, where the, the upper ones, they have this divine insight that the lesser people don't get, the peasants, if you would. And so Nicholas taught that you want to be apostles and his desire. And so think about this. A deacon in the church got power hungry, desired to be an apostle, and ended up founding a, a, a false doctrine teaching. And the Ephesians church had rejected them. But remain, Jesus remembers the, or guarantees a reward. One of the things that I was challenged with this is a way to know if you love the Lord is to ask yourself the question, what would happen if my pastor turned away from the Lord or if my deacons turned away from the Lord? What would happen to your faith if a major figure that you love turned away from the Lord? Because it's a question of, am I follow, are you following Jesus or are you following the pastor? It is weird saying this, but some churches have too high of a view of their pastor. And they think, if we don't have a pastor, we're never going to make it. The only reason this church is doing well is because of our pastor. That's baloney. The only reason the church is doing well is because Jesus loves the church and he cares for it. He is the great shepherd of the sheep. Um, 
This also tells me that one of the contributors to abandoning a love for God is a failure of spiritual leaders. I remember, well, any of you remember Ravi Zacharias? That man was a man who had done a ton of work for the Christian community. He was an apologist. He was speaking in colleges. He was doing things that we didn't, we didn't, none of us felt like we were capable of. He had a genius mind. And I remember um, one of the things that happened is when it came out that he had fallen, that he had bad sin in his life, that it was unrepentant of, they took down all of his resources. And I remember hearing another story of Mark Driscoll. Years ago, he had, he had abused a church, basically. Uh, he had been power-hungry. And finally, the leadership came up, and they said, you are not being a good shepherd, and they kicked him out. And there was a huge, I mean, it blew up when I was in college. And in college, you care about all the modern, the, low, the normal <laughs> events going on. And I remember reading this thing where people were sending comments, and they said, if Mark Driscoll isn't my pastor, I'm not a Christian. And I remember reading that going, wait a minute. Do we follow him or do we follow the pastor? Maybe you could write this down. This would be helpful for you. Glance at Christians, gaze at Christ. Glance at Christians and gaze at Christ. It is likely, especially for uh, you younger, younger people, it is likely that in your lifetime there will be a major spiritual leader that falls. I remember a man who said, I never write a biography about a person until he dies. Because <laughs> he wanted to see if he made it to the end. How do we reclaim our love for Christ, though? To reclaim our love for Christ, go to Ephesians chapter 1. We need to refocus. Jesus is what we need. We need to rejoice. Jesus knows our works. We need to repent. He is master and friend. And we need to remain. Understand that Jesus guarantees the reward. This would be a good prayer for you to pray for yourself, but also um, to pray for each other. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 through 19, and chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. We need to be strengthened by the Lord to have this happen. Verse 18 said, May the eyes of your heart be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Then jump over to chapter 3. Verses 14 through 21. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in what? In love. Not in works. Not in patient endurance rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, to know the love of Christ has that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to his power working in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What we need is for Christ to be working in us again to cultivate that love. And if you saw that passage there at the end that said, To him who conquers, I will grant to you the tree of life. Do you know how you conquer? 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 says, This is the victory that has overcome the world. What? Our faith. In Christ, we are more than conquerors through him 
who loved us. So if you get to that verse, you're like, I don't know if I'm a conqueror. The question is, are you a Christian? Because Christians are conquerors because they're in Christ. So Father, take this time. Renew our love for you. Guide us into what it looks like to repent on a regular basis. And I pray that you would build that passion into us, a passion for Christ. If we've grown weary in doing good because we've lost our love for Christ or abandoned our love for Christ, may we just confess that. May we strengthen each other. And may we work, do the first works out of a love for you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for each person that came. Now strengthen us as we go out to God in your power. And may the love of Christ be shed abroad in our hearts through faith. In Jesus' name, amen.